uh, why don't you open up your Bibles as we get into the message uh, this morning. It feels like God has just done so much already, but we still have uh, a little bit more for uh, God to work in our lives this morning. Open up your Bibles. We're in Judges. Uh, we're doing a series on the book of Judges at the moment. It's uh, in the beginning of the Bible. Don't be afraid to use your contents page to find it or kind of uh, put it in to search for it. Judges, find Judges chapter 10 this morning. While you're doing that, um, I love cooking. I love watching cooking shows and documentaries. Uh, that's the, the kind of thing that I love to do most with my downtime is to hit YouTube, uh, put in some search around like a technique or anything like that. And I, I just, I love it. And I came across a very interesting documentary by Jamie Oliver and a celebrity chef from the UK. And uh, he's all about healthy eating and uh, he was in the States for this one, trying to raise awareness around what kids were eating and uh, how we've lost touch uh, with where our food comes from. So he uh, goes into this primary school and he goes into a classroom. He's got a little bit of his cooking gear and he pulls out uh, this chicken, uh, like we get in the shops, ready to kind of be roasted. And he asks the kids, who wants to eat this? And of course, there's this raw chicken in front of these kids and they're grossed out. They're like, ah, oh, gross, what is this? And they and he's like, who wants to touch it? And they're like kind of wiggling the, the legs. And these kids are kind of being uh, weirded out by this. And so Jamie Oliver takes his knife and he kind of like breaks down the chicken and he cuts off the nice chicken breast and he goes, who would like me to cook this for them? And they're like, oh, no, gross, what is this? And they, these kids just want to have nothing to do with this delicious chicken that he's got there. And uh, it's part of this experiment that he's doing. So he's not kind of broken down the chicken and he's left with this carcass. And he lifts this up and he says, who of you guys want to eat this? And they're like really grossed out. Like, oh, no, gross. He puts it in a, in a blender and he liquidizes it. And he goes, who wants this now? And these kids are really freaking out. So in this bag, he pulls out some other stuff and he's got this like bag of pure MSG. He's got some stabilizer. He's got a few other things. And that starts to mix this in with this uh, liquidized chicken carcass. Now it's a bit of a paste and he forms it into uh, these little patties. Some of you guys know where this is going. He breads it, uh, batters it, and he starts to fright. And now these kids are getting so excited. One kid goes, he's making chicken nuggets. And these kids now get so excited and they're kind of crowding around him while he's cooking. And, and Jamie Oliver's just getting so upset. And he's like, who wants to eat this? And these kids are going, me, 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 me. And he's like, but you didn't want to eat it before. I've just liquidized the chicken carcass and added all this gross stuff. And don't you want to eat these nice chicken breasts? And these kids are going, no, we want to eat the chicken nuggets. He's like, but you know what's in them, right? Yes, but you still want to eat them. Yes, but you know what's in them, right? Yes. I mean, most of us will uh, admit, while we love, you know, good wholesome meal, you know, a nice piece of meat and well-cooked vegetables, how many of us do chicken nuggets, you know, or something like that on the sly, you know, takeouts and uh, fast food restaurants are very popular in South Africa because we love to eat those kind of naughty snacks, even though we know what goes into some of that stuff. It just, we know it's so bad yet we still eat it. And uh, it, it is a really good analogy for where so many of us are at in our faith. That there's a semblance of chicken meat. You know, it's, it's, technically it's chicken. 
But there's so many other really bad things that are mixed into what we call our faith today. But it's really toxic. It's really bad for you. But we think it looks good. We think it smells good. We like to eat it. It tastes good. Even though we know what goes into it. And this is kind of a, the, the, the bedrock for uh, this uh, place where we're at in the series of Judges. Uh, context, if you missed the start of the series, God's people, the Israelites, have entered into the land that God had set apart for them, their inheritance, called the Promised Land, kind of land of Canaan. And uh, they were in slavery in Egypt. Moses leads them out. Uh, they're about to enter into the Promised Land. Doesn't work for that generation. Joshua takes them in. They uh, do a significant amount of conquest. Joshua dies, and the people then fail to execute the full mission of God, which was to eradicate all the people living there. And because they disobey, they now enter into the cycle of because of their obedience, God brings judgment. They then get oppressed. They then suffer severe hardship. They cry out to the Lord in repentance to be saved. God uh, raises up someone called a judge where his spirit is on them to bring God's judgments to those people, set Israel free, bring peace. And the cycle just keeps continuing as they have kind of some semblance of faith, that little bit of chicken, but they're just bringing in all these other ingredients from the nations around them that they couldn't drive out and they've got this weird toxic mix of faith that is causing them huge, huge problems. And we're going to see that this morning as we read through Judges uh, chapter 10 and 11 this morning. And so as what we did last week, Judges is a kind of like a story, a narrative. So we're going to read bits and then kind of unpack it a bit and then uh, kind of close it all off at the end. So Judges chapter 10 and we're going to be reading from verse six to start off with. And this phrase that uh, permeates the whole book of Judges, and again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. Because the Israelites forsook the Lord had no longer served him. He became angry with them and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. And for 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. Something very interesting through Judges, kind of this run of the gods that they worshiped is uh, the most ever. And uh, if you were counting, there's seven and in Hebrew thought, seven is the number of completion. And so if you want to read a little bit into that, this, they've just completely abandoned worshiping God. And they're now worshiping every other God around them. And there's an interesting quote, I, I like it, by a guy called J.D. Greer. And on this he says, idolatry leads to more enslavement, and enslavement leads to more idolatry. Because here they're worshiping all of these other gods. They then get crushed and oppressed by them for a further 18 years, but they're still worshiping these other gods. The gods of the people that are oppressing them, they are still worshiping. And somehow in their idolatry, it leads to enslavement. In their enslavement, uh, they are just going to even more idolatry. 
And so often as we've spoken about that we can get enslaved by some of these things that we worship other than God. And that's going to be a big theme uh, this morning. Often we run to the very things to save us that are actually enslaving us. See, an idol in the Bible is not just a statue that someone bows down to and worship. In fact, an idol can be anything that we derive power, joy, significance, or pleasure from. So what we mean by this is, if you think, if I just become successful, then I will be happy. If I'm successful, then I will have joy. Then I will have meaning. Then I will be safe in this life. Maybe it's academic recognition. Uh, maybe if you know, I just had some kind of gift or talent, or uh, maybe if I was beautiful, or you know, if I achieve on the sports field, if, if I do that, then I will be happy, then I will have joy, then I will have meaning, then I, I will have pleasure. That's an idol. That is something that we are worshiping with our lives. Then you ask, well, how do we become enslaved by that? Well, so many of our decisions that we make in life are in pursuit of that idol. Because we make decisions to work harder because we want more money, we want the promotion. We study harder because my whole life is about receiving some level of degree or uh, title or, or recognition. And they enslave us because we pursue it and we pursue it with the chase of, as soon as I get this, then I'll be happy. As soon as I finish this and I get this promotion, I receive this kind of place in my, my company, that's going to make me happy. And that's how we become obsessed with these things in our lives. And we're not even aware that we have these multiple idols in our lives. The Israelites have a rap sheet of all of these kind of false gods that they're worshiping. And they've got this real toxic mix as, as a people and a chicken nugget Christianity. There's a little bit of chicken there and a whole bunch of other stuff. That we're here this morning, we raise our hands to worship, but in fact, if we look at our life, what's actually enslaved us is this pursuit of money, this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of so many other things that uh, we're obsessed about because those are the decisions that we make in our life, driving kind of our thinking is, well, if I get that and if I do that or do that, you know, maybe the reason that we are experiencing so much unhappiness in our life is because we're enslaved by one idol or another. You know, maybe you're experiencing kind of relationship troubles, like your spouse is always grumpy with you because you've, you know, sold out your marriage to the idol of work, for example, because you worship work and spend so much time there uh, that you're kind of just having a negative effect on all the other relationships around you. I love this verse in Jeremiah 2.13 because it sums up what's happening in Israel and I think it's a good kind of summary of where so many of us are at. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that can't hold water. See, what's happened with uh, Israel and what happens with us with idols in our own lives is one, we reject God and then we replace God. The sins are twofold. We reject God and then we replace God. And so 
this kind of statement in Jeremiah, these cisterns, is uh, there were diggers to draw water to drink, but it's broken, it's muddy, uh, it's not good water, but they keep going there when they have this water that is so pure from God. Same thing, there's, uh, Jamie Oliver cuts off these brilliant chicken breasts, he can cook it up so deliciously, but these kids uh, want to eat these chicken nuggets even though they watch the carcass get liquidized and all this other stuff kind of put into it. We want to eat that. And so we reject God, then we replace him. And we pursue and worship all these other things. And really life for so many of us is just digging another system after another system after another system. This relationship doesn't make me happy, so I'm gonna pursue another one and another one and another one. And you know, I'm not satisfied with my money, so I'm gonna work harder and harder and harder and harder. And we're just kind of drinking from this water that uh, just doesn't quench and satisfy because we're worshiping idols, not worshiping God. And that's such a problem in our faith. Verse 10 of chapter 10. Then the Israelites cry out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. And that is a very important passage because this is the first time that this has happened in the nation of Israel, that God does not say, yes, I will save you. This is quite a big deal. God says, no. You know what, you've forsaken me how many times? Go to those gods that you worship. Let's see how you fare with them. So the question gets asked, why does God not save them like he has when they cry out to him as is the cycle? They worship false gods, they get oppressed, uh, they don't like that situation, they cry out to God, God saves them. And again, when we kind of trapped in in this, this idol worship, God just becomes something that we use. They're just in pain and they want to be out of their pain. And so they're using God here. God, we're sorry, get us out of this this mess. God says, no, I can see your adulterous heart. It's kind of like a serial adulterer who comes back to a spouse just for provision and protection, just till the next time that they can find someone to be unfaithful with. I know that sounds like quite a harsh thing, but that's what's happening with God's people here. And he can see their heart. God, save us, we're in this pain. A big question for us coming out of this and something that we need to examine our hearts with is are there idols in our lives? And a question that you need to spend some time with before the Lord is going, God, do I worship you or God, do I use you? Here, God's people are worshiping all other gods but just wanna use the one true God to get them out of the mess that they're in. Is that something that could potentially be true of us? But verse 15 says this. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best. But please rescue us now. Right, so they genuinely then do repent. They realize actually 
We are using you, God. We've come to you with this, uh, this idolatrous heart. Uh, we don't worship you for who you are. We just need you to get us out of this fix. So we're just using you, God. And then so they genuinely repent. And then God uh, sends a judge. And this is where scripture can get really interesting. And this story gets uh, really interesting for us. So go to chapter 11. When you're reading the Bible to your kids at night, because you want to instill faith into them, don't read them. Judges chapter 11. Okay? There's better things to kind of read into your children uh, if you're wanting them to learn about Jesus. All right, so we're going to read through some of this this morning. So, 11 verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. You can't make this stuff up. As I said last week, there's some really good stuff. If you think the Bible's boring, you're reading in the wrong places. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me away from my father's, father's house? Why do you come to me now when we are in trouble? Right, so here we are. Uh, there's all this oppression from the Ammonites, uh, from the Philistines. Uh, they're crushed and shattered. It's been going on for a while. And so they go, oh, hang on. There was this guy. He was a great fighter. We drove him away. He's got a little bit of an army. Let's see if we can recruit him to fight our cause. And so the elders go to him. Uh, they just kind of try and some diplomacy with him. Listen, come back. You'll be our leader. You'll be commander of all Gilead. We're sorry. Just come and champion our cause. Fight for us. We need your help. And he goes, okay, okay, let's go and do this. And uh, he comes back and he's got his followers. And then he goes and he engages with the Ammonites through some diplomacy. He tries to figure out what's going on here, tries to uh, do some face-to-face -face around this. The Ammonites reject all of that. And now he has to go to war against the Ammonites. And we pick up that story in chapter 11, verse 30. Diplomacy has failed. They now need to go and engage in armed combat. And then Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave into them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arur to the vicinity of Minnith, as far as Abel, Kerarim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, 
You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised uh, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. She said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she will never marry. And after two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he vowed and she was a virgin. Again, you can't make this stuff up. This is really, really hectic. But there is a lot for us to learn about some of the toxic Christianity that we have. This kind of chicken nugget faith where there's a little bit of chicken and a whole lot of other messed up stuff that we kind of bring into our faith. So uh, to kind of talk through uh, this, uh, commentators try and soften um, this passage a little bit and they kind of go, uh, no, he wasn't expecting a person, um, you know, it was going to be an animal. But in those days, animals aren't like our little fur babies that some of you guys call them and have, that uh, it is an animal that's the first thing that greets you when you come home. Animals didn't live in the house. He was always expecting a person to uh, come out of his house. Right? Animals weren't living inside. It was always going to be a person. He knew when making that vow, a person would come and greet him. And then it was going, no, 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 it was just, it wasn't going to kill her. It was just this vow of celibacy, as you read in there, that she's going, she'll never marry. No, the, the text is quite clear. After two months, she came back, and then he did as he vowed. And, and so some people might go, oh, no, no, he didn't plan to kill her. That was, that was always going to be the plan. It is as vile and grotesque as the text uh, explains it. All right, so some questions for us. Why does Jephthah make this vow? Why does he do this? And there's two reasons that he makes this vow. The first one is this. This is how you please pagan gods. Right? He's trying to gain favor. There's this battle. There is something that he needs accomplished. He now has to go and do armed uh, combat. And so he wants to make sure that he wins So he goes before the Lord and he thinks, okay, God, if I make this great sacrifice, I'm going to get great favor. Because obviously, greater the sacrifice, greater the favor. That's how uh, people worship the gods that Israel are now worshiping. These false gods in the areas around them dealt in human sacrifice as a way of gaining God's favor and blessing and doing what they need done. They would go, great favor, great sacrifice, He does the same thing. I need a great favor from the Lord, so I'm going to make a great sacrifice. Whoever comes out of my house, I'm giving to you as a life burnt sacrifice. This is really toxic. But now this is really interesting because if you want to gain God's favor, that's not how you do it. Deuteronomy 18 verse 10, this is what God says. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son and daughter in the fire. This is not how we please God. He's completely missed God's heart and how you gain God's favor and blessing. The one true God never demands a sacrifice of this kind in any shape or form. Yet he goes, God, I need you to come through. Uh, I need your blessing. I'm going to make this great vow and great sacrifice. It's this really kind of toxic faith. Looks appealing. People are going, wow, look at his faith. He's going to sacrifice someone from his household if God gives him the victory. 
kind of like puffing up his chest, like, look how good my faith is. Really, really toxic. But don't we do this ourselves, right? Where we make vows before the Lord. We think it might be a bit barbaric that he's doing that from his household, but how many of us say, God, if you do this, then I will. Maybe we do it so we're in a financial pickle. So then we go, okay, I'm gonna be, be a little bit more generous to the Lord, but God, because of my generosity, can you help me here? You know, God, if I study hard, I'm gonna do my quiet times, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna not sin. God, help me with this exam tomorrow. And when we kind of need a little bit more from the Lord, we kind of do these, these kind of vow behaviors with him. Second reason why I, I think he makes this vow is because he is desensitized to violence. He's been living in a militant kind of environment where there's war and oppression, and he's just completed a military campaign where he's devastated 20 towns. And so it's easy in a culture uh, that celebrates violence, that kind of has this idol of military dominance, life becomes cheap, and it's easy to make a vow of a human sacrifice. Again, you're going, that's crazy. Like, how's that even relevant? Again, this is something that we do. In the pursuit of our idols and our obsession with our own idols, we make crazy sacrifices. Think about uh, marriage and divorce. That people go, I've realized I don't actually love this person. I'm going to pursue real love and uh, find real meaning in my life. And so I'm okay to wreck this home. I'm okay to tear apart a family and kids for the sake of my own happiness. Okay, we don't talk about divorce like that, but at the roots of it, it is the idol of personal happiness and what gets sacrificed along the way is children and a home. But people are, make that decision so easy or so easily these days. Think about this one, and again, if it's a bit sensitive, I apologize. Uh, what are scientists willing to call life on Mars? Right, in the pursuit of finding life on another planet, uh, a single cell is all that they're prepared to claim that there is life on another planet. And yet, uh, in this past month, some countries have raised uh, the, the, so, sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied on my abortion, up to full term. That at full term, they're going, you can terminate this pregnancy. But for inconvenience to your life's goals, uh, you go, it's easy to sacrifice this life because it's an inconvenience for me. Uh, I couldn't find a, a more recent stat, but a few years ago, the average father in America, South Africa doesn't do research like this, but there can be some relation to this. The average father spends five intentional minutes with his children a week because of the pursuit of money. We feel we need to have a certain quality of life. We feel we need to have certain things to have meaning and value. And so what is sacrificed is family. That is five intentional minutes a week because we work. And we might not think that we are like this in any way, that this story has kind of no relation to me whatsoever. But we've forgotten what it means to trust God alone and to worship God alone. And what's kind of come into our faith as people is a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of God, and a whole lot of other stuff. Because if we really do an honest look at our lives and ask the questions, what influences my decisions? What drives my day? What am I really pursuing to find meaning in? 
And the question is, do I worship God alone? Or am I actually sacrificing in my life to false idols? He makes this crazy vow. He's so influenced by the things around him. The culture of the day, where that was how you earned God's favor, was so rooted in him that he thinks that's the same way that I've got to earn God's favor. So then another question again is, so, so that's why he makes the vow. But why does he keep the vow? And it's really the same thing. The same reason he keeps the vow is because he wants God's favor. He has no concept of God's grace. No concept of God's grace. And he thinks, because again, let's put it to us, because if we knew there was something we could do that could guarantee God's favor and blessing on our lives that we could experience in a tangible way, if we knew there was something we would do, wouldn't we do it right? Because what do we want, right? We want God's favor. We want God's blessing in our lives. We want him to be for us and we want to be able to experience that blessing in a very real way. And of course, again, the culture of the day is you make sacrifices to get God's favor. He's so desperate for God's favor that he pursues and he follows through with the vow. It's horrendous, but he has no concept of God's grace. But this is so important for us because God doesn't give victory or favor or salvation by earning it. There is no works of righteousness that we can do to earn God's favor. We find it in his mercy alone in the sacrifice and death of Jesus is where we find his peace, favor, and blessing. So the question is, should he have kept his vow? And the answer is no. He does make this big vow. His daughter comes out. What he should have done in that moment is just repent to God and go something along the lines of, uh, God, I'm so foolish to think any kind of sacrifice that I did would have earned your marital favor. God, I was so foolish to think that there are works that I could have done that would have made you love me more or blessed me more. I was foolish to think that even offering up my daughter would have earned this victory. Every victory that you have given us as a nation has been by your grace alone as a gift. He should have done something along those lines instead of gone through with it. And this is where so many of us are at. Again, we make vows to God. I've made vows to God. God, if you help me with this, then I will do this. You know, we have this thing called our gift righteousness. Somehow, we feel that God accepts us more because we're at church this morning. That because we are doing things of righteousness, like I'm reading my Bible, I am, you know, being good towards people, I'm giving, and we do all of these things, and it makes us think that God loves us more because of our own acts of righteousness. There is only one way to please God, and that is through faith, and faith alone in his faithfulness, in his grace, in his kindness to us. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, it says this, for by grace, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I'm going to read it again. This is so important for us as we are looking at at Judges. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not for yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that any of us can boast. There's only one deal that God makes. 
And there's only one deal that God is ever going to make. And that's his righteousness on us for our surrender and faith. Two things to write down if you're taking notes as we wrap up this. And as we kind of take it out of this passage, the first one is God's grace is a hard thing to grasp. God's grace is a hard thing to grasp. See, we differ in Christianity with every major world religion. And even in those other world religions, they kind of um, haven't come to a final kind of agreement with, uh, do you use a carrot or a stick to kind of get people to comply to their religion? What I mean by this is every other religion is uh, obey, 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 obey. And either with condemnation, the stick, or with blessing, the carrots. And it's always, hear the rules, obey. Hear the rules, obey. Do this, get God's favor. Do this, get God's You must just do, 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 do. And we're set apart and very different from that. Because there's no do in Christianity to earn God's favor. And this is why it's so hard, because it's easy. If we knew what we had to do to get God's favor, that's an easy equation. We can follow that. But we're different in that it's just believe and it's done. Law says do, and it's never done. Because we're always falling short of that. And so, so many of us are left burnt out and weary and disillusioned in trying to earn God's favor, never feeling loved, never feeling that we're part of God's family. We're never good enough for the Lord because we're striving in this space of, I want to earn, earn, earn. I must do and do and do and do. And it's never enough because we're always falling short and feeling like God's uh, just never loving us. And that's because we've never really wrestled through this thing called grace. This thing that says everything from the Lord is a gift. That you can never earn God's love. You can't. It's impossible. Because he's given it to you before you've earned a thing. Scripture tells us while we were enemies, he loved us. That before we've done anything, it is already completed in Jesus Christ. Grace just says, believe and it's done. And this leads to joy and freedom. And so many of us are not experiencing this joy and freedom in Christ because we've really not pushed into grace because we're still somehow trying to uh, enter into this place where I'm gonna earn God's favor by what I do. Look what I've done, God. Look what I've done, God. And now you must, now you must. And you know, if I do this, and all this kind of vow language because we're pursuing so many other things and not the complete surrender and worship to God alone. That there's so many other things that we are worshiping. The last kind of point for you to write down is this. When you look at the life of Jephthah, this judge, it, it, it really points us to the statement, we need a better judge. There's some uh, very interesting similarities between this guy and Jesus. Jephthah was driven away by his brothers and it was said of Jesus that he was rejected and despised. Both men were rejected by people. Jephthah was called back and enticed to come and save his people. When we needed saving, Jesus came running to us. When diplomacy didn't work, Uh, Jephthah wasn't afraid to go to war uh, to kill people, kill his own people and even his own daughter 
When it came for Jesus to fight, it was not us who died, but him who laid down his life so that we did not have to die. Jephthah believed in earning uh, God's favor only through extreme sacrifices. And in Jesus, the only sacrifice was his life for ours. And that was a free gift and completely by his grace. Jephthah was Israel's savior like all the others, but was completely broken. And it just points to Jesus, the perfect savior who was broken for the broken, so that we could experience his enduring faithfulness in our lives. It's really important for us to examine our lives because without even knowing it, we put other things before God and we worship them. God's faithfulness, His grace demands our surrender fully to Him and Him alone that we worship him and him only. What he gives us is the free gift of his grace that is unearned. There's nothing we can do to get it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And so this morning, I want us to take a moment to think through that. And if you need to kind of just kind of close your eyes and look inward and go, God, where have I replaced you in my life? Where have I gone into this kind of chicken nuggets Christianity where there you are, the pure meat. And I'm just adding all these other things to it. Where am I trying to earn your favor, your love, your grace? God, where, where, where in my life have I just missed the gospel? Where have I missed that I don't need to earn your love? I have it. Maybe this is where you're at this morning, that your whole faith walk has been this constant pursuit of trying to earn God's favor. And you have never surrendered into what he has already done. The gospel is, he dies on the cross so we do not have to die. It's in our place for our sin. He gives us his righteousness We're adopted into his family. We're called his children by doing nothing else but believing in his sacrifice. Not us making more and more extreme sacrifices in the hope that we get his love. The extreme sacrifice was the perfect sinless one in place of us who was guilty of sin and that we know his righteousness instead. That is what we believe as Christians. We earn God's favor by doing nothing but surrendering and believing in what he has already done. If you're tired of trying to earn God's love, surrender into what he has already done for you. Just surrender into that he loves you no matter what. In spite of everything you've done, he is faithful and he loves you. He knew everything about your life before You even did it and you can't say, but my sin is so great. How will Jesus forgive me? This is why I've got to do all of these things because my life was so messed up. He doesn't care about that. He cares about your surrender into what he has already done. Jesus, I just want to pray for everyone who's just been burdened by trying to earn your love. 
Jesus, I pray that for the first time today, maybe people just experience what grace is. We don't deserve the free gift of your love. I know that we feel we always need to earn everything that we have and work for it. But that's not the case with you, God. God, thank you that we don't need to make vows. We don't need to make sacrifices to try and earn what we have in you, but that you've just given it to us freely in Jesus. But that's the only sacrifice that matters is Jesus. Your death instead of ours. Jesus, I pray that you would move us to a place where we just smash down every idol that we worship and pursue our happiness and our contentment and our meaning and our security and safety in you and you alone. Bring us to a place of repentance for pursuing all of those things, Jesus. Help us kind of weed out this cultural Christianity to pursue you, our one true God, only and be worshipers of you, God, and you alone.